So in our three preview gatherings that we've had uh, this summer, we've, uh, we, we started a, a little mini-series called Exploring the Mission, the Motive, and the Method of Jesus. And so in the first sermon, we looked at the mission of Jesus, and we saw um, Jesus reaching out to um, uh, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a, a, an oppressor. We also saw him reach out to a man who had been blind from uh, from birth, and Jesus went after both of them, both the oppressed and um, the oppressors. And so what we really found is that Jesus is coming to seek and save the lost. And the reality was all of us are lost. All of us are in need of Jesus to enter into our lives, uh, to bring salvation, to welcome us back into the family of God. Last month, we looked at the motive of Jesus. We were in this, this passage where Jesus is talking about his coming suffering And he finishes with these words and he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we said, what what motive? What motive could possibly lead somebody to endure suffering and to be willing to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world? And after we finished through that sermon, we realized the only motive that could explain why Jesus would do that is love. That's it. It's just love, pure and simple. Because of love, Jesus was willing to endure suffering and to become a sacrifice for many. And so today, we want to finish this series and look at the method of Jesus. So if his mission is to seek and save the lost, doing so with this unbelievable motive of love, how does he plan on doing it? How is Jesus actually going to fulfill that mission? And as we begin our time, I want to help frame up today's sermon by looking at it through the lens of expectations. Expectations are powerful, right? They change literally how we see the world around us. And and, and expectations are so fundamental to who we are, they can actually start to change and shape our very behaviors. And so as I was looking into expectations, I came across this fascinating study that was done. This researcher wanted to test and look at the power of expectation. And so he went and bought a bunch of rats. Okay, don't get squeamy. I don't have any of those. It's not an object lesson, okay? So he went and got a bunch of rats, okay? And he went to these researchers and he said, hey, I'm doing this, this, this research. I need you to run the rats through these mazes, you know, take data, write it all down so we can track what's happening. And he said, oh, but by the way, um, these rats are kind of experienced, and we've, we've actually separated them into dumb rats and smart rats. And so some of you will have, I mean, these are you know, some uh, top-shaped kind of rats. Like th- These guys know how to run the mazes, and you've got some dunces um, over here. So some of you will be working with dumb rats. Some of you working with smart rats. Um, the reality is, is that they were just your average run-of-the-mill. He had just picked them up. These are just like... Regular rats. There's no smart rats. There's no dumb rats. But the researchers had in their mind this expectation that, okay, I'm working with the top of the class over here, and these guys over here had the dunces. And the findings were remarkable, that the smart rats did actually twice as better as the dumb rats. And again, the same kind of rat, just your average North Dakotan rat. But what was happening is that as the researchers were handling the rats, those expectations translated into small micro behaviors that changed how they actually interacted with the rats. So the guys with the dumb rats, I mean, they've recorded all this. They're like calling them names, you know, talking. I mean, 
what do you got to, what, what, what does that say about you if you're talking down to, to rats, like calling them names, like dummy and all that kind of stuff, right? But in the way that they handled them, right, they were a little rougher with the dumb rats, kind of just throwing them in uh, to the deal, roughing them up a little bit. And then over here with the smart rats, I mean, I heard some recordings where they're like, yeah, he seems kind of smart, right? And you're like, it's just a rat. But they treated them much more warmly. They encouraged them, you know, cheering them on. And all of those little behaviors actually translated into better results. This happens with people too, right? It's not just rats. Uh, I, I came across in, in looking through this a, a fascinating story about a guy named Daniel Kish. Anyone heard of Daniel Kish? They actually call him the human Batman. See, he was blind since uh, he was 13 months old. He literally has no uh, memory of ever seeing color, ever seeing sight. Uh, he has no memory of it. He had an ocular cancer, and so his eyes are actually removed. So he's, he's like completely blind, okay? Um, but it was interesting, growing up, what often happens in a, in a blind home is that because this child isn't able to see that their whole life, they're kind of led by the hand. And the expectation is because you're blind, it really limits all that you can do in life. But Daniel grew up in a different home. These expectations weren't put on him. In fact, he was taught to think about, not, not, uh, to not think about his disability as some life-crushing reality, but as just a different way of life. And as a small child, around two years old, he developed um, an echolocation system just like bats use, right? Where they, where they make these noises and then they're able to tell objects and shapes and depth based on um, hearing and listening to the, to the sound waves in the room. And he actually developed this as a toddler, okay? He's, it's, it's brilliant. He just figured out a different way to see. And so you can go YouTube Daniel Kish. He can ride his bike on the road, he's completely blind. And you just hear him clicking. And he's like, oh, there's a car. Oh, there's a, th-. I mean, he, without crashing his bike, he actually takes hikes in the woods. There's video of him on these cliffs where, like, I can see just fine and I would fall off. And he's out there. And he just knows where he's going because the expectations around his life were, this isn't going to crush my life. I've just got to figure out another way to see Think about how your expectations influence the people that you interact with. Think about the, uh, the teacher-student dynamic, right? When a teacher has an expectation of a child that they're going to achieve and they're going to uh, make good grades, think about how that changes and influences how that teacher actually interacts with them. Or if they get the report that this kid is the class clown, he's never going to add up to much. You know the family that he comes from. What does that do to change the expectations um, and, and no one admits this out loud, but it, does, it changes how you actually interact with the child. Or look at a coach and an athlete, right? I, I remember playing um, uh, Texas high school football. There were not any great expectations on my career as a football player, right? But for the guys who they thought, man, this guy could really make it, what kind of expectations did the coaches have? And how did that translate into their actual successes, Think about your relationship, parents, with your children, right? And the expectations that we have in those relationships. You see, we can't get away from them. Everybody, if you're human, lives and interacts with expectations. And no one is able to perfectly manage those expectations. We will, throughout our lives, under-expect a people and will over-expect a people. And that gap between um, reality and our expectation often lends itself in disappointment. In our passage today, we're going to see how expectations influenced how people saw Jesus. And more specifically, we're going to look at the expectations surrounding the very methodology of Jesus. There was all this talk about if he's the Messiah, why is he doing this? 
Why is he living his life this way? Why is he practicing his ministry that way? You see, expectations concerning Jesus influenced how people saw him and how they interacted with him. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves, what expectations do we have concerning Jesus? Because none of us are free from those. All of us bring our preconceived notions, our assumptions, and our expectations about who Jesus is, what he's doing, and, and, and even now, fast forward into today, what he's doing in your life right now. So the question is, will those expectations that we have help us or hurt us in seeing Jesus for who he really is? Will those expectations lead us to reject him outright? Or will those expectations lead us to worship him and follow him in the everyday stuff of life? So let's jump right into it. Luke 18. We just had these words read. It says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. We'll have the words up here. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, right off the bat, I need to set up the context so that you understand the, the, the situation that this conversation is happening in, okay? John is in prison, all right? He's been imprisoned by Herod, who's kind of the, 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 the sub-king of the area of, of Galilee, and um, he's sitting underneath the authority of the corrupt Roman government. Now, don't think... Um, in, in this day and age, people did not have free speech. There's no Bill of Rights. There's no protected amendments. Um, and John was publicly outspoken against the corruption in Herod's government. Okay? So like in today's world, you can post on Facebook all you want about what you see wrong with the government, right? And you're able to post the next day and the next day and the next day. In his day, if you were outspoken and the, the, the leader didn't like that, he could immediately have you imprisoned. And, and, and the final straw that broke the camel's back was that John spoke out publicly against Herod's divorce and remarry, his remarriage to his sister-in-law. And Herod said, that's it. I'm done with it. You're going to prison. And so John is sitting in a jail cell, and he's kind of looking at his life, right? And he's wondering, um, I, I, thought, I thought I was the forerunner to the Messiah. I thought this guy was coming to bring radical change, and here I am in chains, and so he's starting to ponder this and think about this. And all these are starting to influence and inform his expectations about Jesus. And the other thing you need to know about John is his whole life has been surrounded by this, this wonderful mystery and expectation itself. Right? His father was a guy named Zechariah who was a priest. And he and his wife Elizabeth were infertile. They had struggled with infertility their whole life. They got to be old and advanced in age, well past the point of being able to have children. And an angel comes to Zechariah while he's in the, the, the temple and says, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers. You are going to give birth to a son. And you're going to give him the name John. And he is going to be the forerunner, the one to prepare the way for God's Messiah. And so if you think about him growing up his whole life, knowing, like, I've got this job to do. There's something special coming. And I get to kind of lead the way. What would that do to his expectations about this man? His whole life, he's been looking for the one to bring radical change, change, radical transformation, answers to life's ultimate questions. This one is supposed to be the savior of the world. But his current reality is not lining up with his long-held expectations. 
And now John is looking at the ministry of Jesus from prison, and it seems rather ordinary. I mean, Jesus is not joined up with any political party. He doesn't have an army with him. I mean, you look at his closest friends, they're nothing to write home about. They're just your average fisherman, tradesman. One of them's even a tax collector. Like, how did he even get in to the mix? Influence? Not really. He's ministered in this small corner of the Roman Empire that most of the known world doesn't even know about. How is this guy the one? What's he been doing? So he starts to kind of think about his life. Well, Jesus has been eating a lot of meals in people's homes, and he's been going around from town to town preaching the gospel. Of course, there's the miracles, and so that's kind of playing into John's um, expectations, right? He's got this power. He, he could, why doesn't he just unleash it? His method seems to be rather lackluster, and it's not producing the results that he hoped for. The government is still in place. He expected Jesus to be this fiery reformer, bringing change, and yet he's gone about reaching out to the least of these, the outcasts, people who've been pushed to the margins of society, and he's been bringing them in. And so he's starting to wonder, have I been following the wrong guy? Like, I know I'm supposed to be the former. Did I miss it? Is it have, I, have I been going with the wrong guy? You need to know about John. John is not a pushover. He's not weak in the knees. He doesn't have a weak stomach. He's lived most of his life in the wilderness. I mean, he was willing to speak out against the king knowing the consequences. His clothes are made of camel hair. His diet consists of locusts and honey. He's like a man's man out in the wilderness, out in the, the, the boondocks. And so he's not weak. But all these expectations are coming in. And he's wondering, man, did I miss it? And so because of that, he's, he can't leave, right? He's in prison. He sends two of his disciples to go to Jesus and to just straight up ask him, hey, are you the one who is to come or are we supposed to look for another? We are all hardwired, every one of us in this room. Let me pull it back to you right now. Every one of us are hardwired to look to something or someone to determine our worth, our value, we all look to someone or something to anchor our hopes and dreams. We all look to something or someone to alleviate our fears and to give life meaning and purpose and direction. It's one of the central universal truths that makes us human, and it's something that we all have in common. In a world that is so divided, right? Our country is divided in some significant ways. This is one of those threads that I think we can actually come around to go. Every single body is looking for something or someone to anchor their life and to give it meaning. I mean, every one of us, and I mean everyone, is looking to someone to legitimize and validate your life. Let me give a couple examples to make it stick. Look at the husband and wife dynamic. On one hand, this relationship is one of the most profound, beautiful realities that God has ever put into the world. It's founded on a deep oneness that's supposed to produce joy and companionship for all of life's trials and triumphs. But how does it go when you put all the weight of your deepest hopes and longings on your spouse? What happens to them? It crushes them. It's a weight that no single person was supposed to bear. Not only will it distort your life, but it will distort, distort your spouse's life in a hundred ways. Not even the best of husbands and wives were meant to give your soul all that it needs. Look at the parent-child relationship, right? What happens when a child idolizes their parent and they put them up on this pedestal? All these expectations around them. What happens when they find out that they're just human? 
right? They're disappointed, right? Because they, they think, man, my, 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 my boys have to think, my dad can fix anything. And I remember that day when I was like, but I can't fix this one. And it was like, but dad, you, you can fix anything. And it's like, I can't fix that one. That's plastic. That doesn't go back together. I'm sorry. You're right. Right? And there's coming a day when it's not just my dad can't fix my toy. They're going to see as they grow up that I'm just a regular struggler going through life doing the best I can just like everybody in this room. Right? What about when a parent seeks to have their worth validated by their child? Well, that turns out nasty, doesn't it? The weight of those expectations on that little soul robs them of their childhood and ultimately leads to resentment. What about work? When you're looking to work to validate your life. You see, work was created by God to be a blessing, not as a way for you to find your validation and significance. We're made in the image of God, which means we're we're filled with creativity and cultivation. And when we put our hands to work, beautiful things happen as a result. But what happens when your worth becomes equated with your work. Here's what happens. When you're performing well, man, you feel good about yourself. You've got this pep in your step, head, head, head held up high. You're the man, you're the woman at the office, right? You're killing it. What happens when you miss the deadline? What happens when your boss looks at it and is like, this isn't what I asked for? If your worth is attached to your work, you'll find yourself in a valley. You'll find yourself despairing. One of the more popular options in our culture today is to look to yourself to find your identity and worth, right? You can't find it out there, can't trust anybody, it's not going to be in the work, but it's going to be me. I'll put all the chips in on me. And so when we can't find it in a relationship or a hobby, we look to ourselves as the ones to give us our hope, purpose, and significance, right? Here's how the, the, the taglines go. Only you can determine what's right or wrong. What, you do you. YOLO, Right? It's all on you. You want ultimate significance and meaning for your life? Just ask yourself. You are the only person who can determine it. Now think about the pressure that starts to mount as you start growing up. And you're like, man, I got I to gotta have an answer to why life matters. Like I got to come up with what my purpose is. I've got to come up with what my worth is. And all of a sudden, that same kind of pressure that you might put on someone else or on some other thing, now you're bearing the full weight of that on yourself. And I got to ask, how's that working out for you? Look what Tim Keller said uh, in, in, in one of his books. He said, our need, we'll have the words up here, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and values on, we essentially deify. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think ourselves as highly irreligious. You see, John's question, are you the one, is not different than our question We are all looking for purpose and significance in our life. We are all looking for someone to be the one. John had all his chips placed on Jesus. And with all of those expectations, and now they're colliding with the current reality, he's asking, did I miss it? Because what a tragedy would it be for John if he had placed it all, all of his hopes and dreams on one person, and it turned out to be the wrong one. So what about you? What, what expectations do you have about, as you come to Jesus this morning? No one in this room is free from them. Everybody brings their baggage. We can't see it, but if, but if we were to, to be able to see our spiritual baggage, it would be filling up this room right now. We all bring thoughts to the table when it comes 
to Jesus. And so we must evaluate those and gain self-awareness so that at least we know what we're doing with. At least we know the kind of lenses that are uh, uh, over our eyes as we come to see Jesus. All right, let's keep going in our passage to see how this gets worked out. Look with me at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. So remember, John's disciples go and find Jesus, and they say, are you the one, or are we supposed to look for someone else? Now notice, Jesus doesn't make a case for himself, right? He doesn't go, pull out your scrolls and your Torah, let me show you who I am, right? He doesn't get defensive, he doesn't, get, uh, he doesn't rebuke them, like how dare you come and challenge and question me? And also, he doesn't write them off. So he says, you want to know if I'm the one? Jesus answers their question with his life. So he starts to give them a taste of the kingdom of God. You want to know what happens when Messiah is here? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are healed. The deaf begin to hear. The dead are even raised. And the poor and the marginalized have good news. You see, Jesus reaches out to the margins of society and he starts to draw people in and he starts to show them what happens when Jesus shows up. All the effects of the curse of the fall of humanity are starting to be undone. All of us live with this deep sense of reality that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And when we see someone who can't see, we go, Man, that's not supposed to be that way. And when Jesus opens their eyes, he's giving us a taste of what is to come. When all things that are sad become untrue. He's been going town to town, giving people a taste of the kingdom. And what Jesus is ultimately saying is, I am life itself. And when I bring my full presence to, wait, to bear on this world, you will get a taste of things to come, and all the sad things will become untrue. Now, it's also important to note, I just love this, that John's doubting is not met with condemnation for Jesus. So if you're here today and you have doubts, I said this earlier, but God is not angry that you have doubts. He is not mad that you have questions. In fact, I think this passage shows us that doubting is in fact a natural and essential part of mature faith. You see, at some point, all of us need to wrestle through our doubts. Because here's what happens. When you're born into this world and you grow up in your families, you start to inherit all these beliefs. Doubts become a process where they go from being inherited beliefs to internalized beliefs. They actually become your own. Jesus shows here a great, John shows us a great example of what it looks like to have doubts, but to do it from a place of faith-seeking understanding. He's got questions, he's got doubts, he's got honest questions, but he's looking for answers. This faith-seeking understanding is a posture where you begin with faith and you're trying to understand. And this process clarifies and it leaves you owning your own beliefs. The opposite of this kind of faith-seeking understanding kind of doubt is the kind of unbelief that seeks validation. So you can have questions and doubts where you really don't have an open mind. You really don't have honest questions. You're looking for reasons to validate your already settled disposition of unbelief. That's not the kind of doubt that's going on here. 
This is the kind of doubt that's going, I'm wrestling to understand. I believe, but help my unbelief. And those are two entirely different conversations. And maybe you've had some of these conversations yourself with other people. And there's, there's some people who are genuinely seeking. They, they have questions and you get to engage. Those conversations tend to go really well. What happens with those other kind of conversations, right? The topic of God or religion gets brought up, but, but, but there's not this faith-seeking understanding. There's really this fight going on. And what happens? It gets heated. It gets confrontational, right? These are two kinds of ways. It took a different course than John expected, and he doubted. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He receives him and gives him space to process those doubts. Now look at verse 23. This is an important one. Jesus finishes this conversation to go back and tell John, and he says, look, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now be very, let's be really clear. Jesus gives the space and the time to process those doubts, but there is coming a time when doubt has to become a decision. We've got to move from the place of doubt to decision. At some point, Jesus says, blessing is for those who are not offended by me. There comes a point when we have to make a call. We can't doubt forever. At some point, we must decide. And so let me ask you, has Jesus turned out to be someone different from what you had hoped, expected, or imagined? If so, Jesus is calling us, just like John, to rethink our expectations in light of who he is. So this is what John is doing. This is what we must do. We must press in and look at Jesus more closely than we ever have before. So I invite you today, suspend disbelief for a moment. Maybe start from a place of faith and enter in and look at Jesus afresh. Reconfigure your expectations around Jesus. Don't try to fit him into your paradigm. You know why? He is the paradigm to form our expectations around. Jesus, or John um, doubted because he, his expectations about Jesus were not lining up with the Jesus he saw. And so that begs the question, are we missing Jesus because of a gap between our expectations and our current reality? So let's keep going and see um, how Jesus, uh, uh, the methodology of Jesus. Now we're going to skip down into verse 31. Let me summarize what happens after this conversation. So there's crowds around Jesus. There's like when you read the Gospels, you'll see there's always people and crowds around Jesus. And so they've kind of witnessed this conversation. And Jesus takes that teachable moment to go, hey, uh, John's asking some questions about, uh, about, about my ministry and what's been going on. Let me ask you a question. Why did you go out to see John in the wilderness? Right? What, what was your motivation? What were you expecting to see? And he kind of says, look, you guys went out there to see a prophet. You didn't, you didn't go for the scenery. You didn't go to see a man dressed in fine clothing. Why? Because he was dressed in camel hair. Right? There's nothing fine about that, right? He said, you went out there because he claimed to be a prophet of God. Our people have had 400 years of silence. Let that settle in. There's been 400 years since the last prophet of God has shown up on the scene talking about how God is going to work in and through the world to bring about salvation. And so when, when they get word that God has sent us another prophet People go in droves to hear his message. And what was his message? Repent. Turn from your sin and follow God's Messiah. He's coming. Get ready. Prepare your hearts to follow him. Some people rejoiced. Some people took it as a way to get the guilt off their shoulders, to be joined back to God, and they follow in obedience and get baptized. And others reject him. And so here's what we have when G, uh, in verse 31, 
Jesus is kind of responding to those who have rejected them. So look with me at verse 31. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Okay, let me unpack that, because you're probably like, never heard of a dirge, okay? It's okay. It's a game that children would play, and they would essentially, in the marketplace, um, those with the instruments, if they were playing a happy tune, then all the kids would uh, dance like it was like a wedding feast and be happy. You know, it's kind of like when my kids want to have a dance party and they throw YouTube up on the screen, and they're, uh, you know, playing music and dancing around. That's what they were doing. Sometimes, um, to change the scene, they play uh, a sad song. That's what a dirge is. It's a sad song. And then they pretend to weep and to mourn. And so it's like this this role-playing game. And the people who are in control are what? The people with the instruments, right? They get to change the tune at their leisure, and then the people who are out there have to kind of dance and follow along. What Jesus is saying, he's using this parable, and he says, this generation of, of ones who are rejecting me, you're like children who are upset. Because you're trying to play this tune, and we're not dancing to your music. And he's like, you're getting upset, and you're kind of taking your ball and going home. What he's saying is, you guys didn't like that John and myself didn't, play, uh, didn't dance to your tunes. We kind of came in playing our own tunes. And what did they say about them? Look with me at verse 33. It said, uh, for John the Baptist, this is kind of like the, the current rumors of the day, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So what, what's going on here is that people would look at John's way of life, right? He's out in the desert. He's, he's fasting. He's only eating locusts and honey. And they looked at his life and they said, John, you are far too radical. You're, you're living your life in a way that nobody could follow. It's kind of this separatist, elitist kind of way. And so the only conclusion they could come to was, he must be crazy. Maybe that brother has a demon. Like nobody, what would compel a man to live that way? And so they, they're able to write him off and his words by going, he is crazy. And then on the other hand, they look at Jesus, right? And they're looking at Jesus and they're going, man, look who he eats with. He will have table fellowship with tax collectors, known sinners, people who have reputations that are immoral. And he's willing to go and eat with them, break bread with them, touch them. How could this be the Messiah? There's no way that God's Savior of the world is eating dinner with the likes of them. And so how do they write him off? They go, man, he, he must just be a glutton and a drunkard. Like he needs all the food and all the wine, and so he can't get it from these other dinner parties, so he's willing to go um, slop around with the slum of the earth. Jesus didn't fit their mold of piety. He ate and drank and associated with sinners. The messengers of God won't dance the way they want them to, and so they write them off completely. Jesus kind of enters into this conversation and rebukes them. He compares them to these whining, complaining, um, bratty children. And he concludes by saying, wisdom will be justified by her children. So he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't feel the need to explain everything. He just says, what? In due time, we'll see who's right, right? The wise way of life will ultimately show itself to be the case. Given enough time, 
the righteous right way of living, one of us will be vindicated. Either you're right or I'm right, but in time, wisdom will decide. He doesn't feel the need to defend. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is not actually a drunkard or a glutton. These are just exaggerated claims of those who are rejecting them. Their their claims have no basis whatsoever. But what we don't want to miss is that he did eat a lot of meals. There's a reason why they're able to say, man, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Right. Why? Because when you walk through the New Testament, you walk through the Gospels, you will find this. go, Go do this with Luke's Gospel. Jesus is almost always on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. I mean, it's just this regular rhythm throughout the book of Luke. Or when he's given his illustrations, he's almost always using food analogies. I mean, Jesus was excited about food. His life and ministry has been marked by meals and dinner. And don't miss this. The God of the universe is sitting down at the table with sinners. Now, for those religious folks out there, it's scandalous. They just, they have no category for how it is that Jesus would enter into these meals with them. And here's why. They primarily view God as a judge. And so that's true. God is a judge. He will bring justice. He will right every wrong. There is coming a day when uh, the, the righteous will be vindicated and the unrighteous will be condemned. But he's not primarily a judge. Also, they, uh, we often think of God primarily as a healer. Okay? And don't get me wrong, God is a healer. He is going to bring restoration and healing. Our bodies one day are going to work the way they're supposed to. You're not going to go to bed and wake up sore for no reason because you're getting old anymore. That's coming. There's going to come a day when we don't take ones out of our hands. That day is coming. God is a healer. But hear me, family. He's not primarily a judge or healer. God is first and foremost a gracious host. Here's what I mean. In the beginning, when God decided to create, it wasn't out of need. He didn't create this world because he needed us. It was actually a far greater thing. He created us out of desire. You see, God has always experienced perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship as the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly content. God is not a needy God like he needs us for something. He is perfectly content and satisfied in himself. But that perfect love begs to be shared. And so God created. And when you open up the pages of scripture, you see what he's creating. He's just, I mean, look around. Watch, look at the, 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 the many beautiful things God has created. It's an expression of his love. And in that first scene in the Bible, we have God creating man, wanting this fellowship, wanting this relationship. And check this out. He opens up the table of his world and he says, you can eat anything. All of this is for you. And what is God doing? I want you to think of the garden like this big table, this big meal where we're called in to dine with God. And every meal was actually an invitation to dine and fellowship with God. Every meal was actually an invitation to to, to see God as the gracious host who's deciding the menu, who's laid out the table for us. And yet there's this one tree right over here this one thing that God says, don't eat of it. This is awful. Like, if you eat it, okay, will we trust God as the host and eat what he has put before us? Or are we going to go over here and become our own hosts, create our own meal, become uh, in control of our lives ourselves? 
Every day in the garden was an opportunity to choose who will be the host. And you know the story, right? There came a day when they chose to go their own way, when they wanted to be the host. They set their own table with their own meal, and just like God promised, death entered into the world. The very fabric of society was torn to shreds and ripped apart. They chose to rebel and traded freedom and unhindered community, table fellowship, intimacy with God so that they could be their own hosts. The fall of humanity as a dinner party gone wrong. They rejected God as host. They wanted to be in control. So how does God plan to bring back humanity? I think it's fascinating and beautiful that the thing that marked Jesus' ministry the most were meals. It's as if he was saying, we rejected God as host in the past. He's inviting you back to the table. Come and eat. Come and dine with God. You who thirst, come be filled. You who hunger, come and eat. You who are far, come and be brought near. You know, who you, who you eat with says a lot about what you, uh, who you are and what you value, right? We have these unspoken kind of parameters and boundaries around who can be at our table, right? There's probably some people right now, you don't have to name them out loud, who you'd rather not be at your dinner table tonight, right? Maybe they're enemies, maybe you can't stand them. Um, you, you, they just get on your nerves, right? Or they're demeaning, right? You don't want them at your table. And there's probably a whole host of other, of other people you'd love to have at your table. Like, like if you could create your dream team dinner party, like you've got this, like I, they would be at that table. What we eat says a lot about who we are. Jesus was willing to eat with anyone. He had no boundaries. Everyone was welcomed at Jesus' table, and everyone is, he's calling everyone to his table. Because see, these meals become this intimate space where sinners are transformed from estranged enemies into beloved family. And it's not really the meal itself. It's not the, the food or the substance that does the work. But it's, it's this, the meal provides this sacred space for people to see Jesus and rethink their entire his grace. In just a few minutes, we're going to go to Jesus' table, which is a picture of the Last Supper. And all of the ways that God decided to help us remember him. Again, I don't think it's by accident that he chose a meal to be the way that we remember him. Think about what's happening at the Last Supper. He's breaking the bread, and he's saying, my body will be broken just like this bread so that you could be made whole. My blood, like this wine, is going to be poured out so that you will be filled. And the Bible ends in the book of Revelation with this meal that is to come, this feast, this celebration when God takes all the redeemed of all of history across this massive table and we feast and fellowship and we hold up our glasses rejoicing in what God has done. Jesus ate lots of meals to show us what life with him would be like. And I want to close a lot, couple points of application. As we follow Jesus's method, I want you to know it's relational and repeatable. Like we can actually do this. So here's what I mean about relational. Jesus didn't have some complex business plan with focus groups, something that was really hard and complicated to follow. It was simple. He was intentional about the everyday stuff of life. 
the bread and butter of Jesus' ministry was bread and butter. Most of the time, his ministry looked like welcoming people to his table. He was intentional with the everyday normal stuff of life. And so by relational, I simply mean presence. So much of the time, we are in the same spaces, but we couldn't be more distracted and um, not there, right? We're just absent. We're on our phone. I mean, you ever looked over at a meal and seen a couple eating a meal and like all they're doing is on their phone? Are they actually in, like at that point, just get separate tables, you know? There's no presence actually going on. What I find so fascinating about Jesus is that whenever he was there, he was there. When you had a moment with Jesus, you got all of him. Eyes locked in. At that moment, there was nothing else more important to God. In that moment, when Jesus was with you, he was with you. What would it look like if when we were with someone, we were there? Not looking on our phone, not distracted by the buzzing, not thinking about what we have to do next, not thinking about how we're going to respond, but we were just there. Would God use that to transform lives around you? Would he use that to transform your own life? And by repeatable, here's what I mean. It's not complicated. I'm not saying it's, it's easy. I'm not saying it's not costly, but it's not complicated. If you've got a table and you can put some mac and cheese in the pot, you can have a meal. I'm not saying it's a great meal, but you can have a meal. And, you can, and, and people aren't coming for the meal. They're coming for you. They're coming for your presence. They're coming for what that meal represents. What I don't want to do is reduce all of the missionary life as having meals, but it's not less than that. But what I, I, I like the idea of meals because it lets you start thinking about something you do every single day of your life. How can you take the ordinary things of your life, be fully present, and let God do something extraordinary through the ordinary? That's what he's all about. These meals that Jesus had were ordinary, but through them, he think about your recreational and hobbies your recreational activities. What do you do for fun? What do you like to go out and do? You don't have to uh, gear up for that, right? You actually already enjoy doing it. You're already actually doing it. It's in the rhythms of your life. So maybe it's working out. Maybe it's going and running all the stairs at a stadium. That doesn't sound fun to me, but maybe that's what you do. Maybe it's, it's um, uh, going to the gym. Whatever it is, what, uh, going to parks and, and, and letting the kids play, whatever it is. How could you take those normal, everyday things that you're already doing and see those through the lens of mission? What about getting out in your neighborhood and walking around? Actually, like when you pass by someone, not giving them the, the cold New England shoulder, but actually engaging, asking what their name is, getting in, uh, 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 finding out who they are. Have you ever asked the people who lived on your street their whole life when the last time there was a neighborhood block party? We did that when we moved into our house. I said, hey, when was the last time, Donna, there was a, like a, a little block party? And she said, never. Nobody has ever done that. And so what did our gospel community do the next month? We threw a party and we invited the neighborhood, not the whole neighborhood, but our street, right? Just simple everyday things that we can enter into the everyday stuff of life. How many of you have a job? You go to work, right? Okay. You can actually become friends with your coworkers, and I don't mean like friends we know each other's name because they're in the cube next to me. I mean you're, you're connected to their life in such a way that they would actually call you friend. They would invite you to their parties. They would invite you to their kid's birthday. Go out with them after work. You can go have a drink with them. It's okay. 
Go in, like invite them into to go to the movie. Do whatever. Become an actual friend that we love. Volunteer with local nonprofits. One of the reasons we love Waltham is it has a ton of nonprofits. Um, we, we're about to roll out a thing called Serve Waltham that's highlighting the different nonprofits we've got relationships with and the ones we're already doing work with. There's great work going on in this city right now. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can show up with the love in the hands that God has given us and actually start serving and getting to know our neighbors. I'm not saying it's easy. Sharing our life with other people is messy. Your, your pantries will get depleted. You start having meals in your home, guess what? You're going to have to up that grocery budget, okay? It's going to happen. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you all sorts of things, but it's worth it. Because, Christian, you were bought with a price. You were not your own. Jesus gave up everything. And so the question is, what, what, what's left? What, what wouldn't we give to follow him in his mission? Maybe some of you need to create margin in your life. It is so busy. It's so jam-packed. There's just not room at all for anything else. What would it look like for you to uh, get the calendar out and create space and margin? Let me bring it to a close. When it comes to Jesus' method, what did you expect? What did you think was going to be the way that he went out? Did you think it was going to be this elaborate plan with, with, uh, with shock and awe and fireworks? Our expectations of Jesus will either lead us to reject him as irrelevant or follow him and give him all of our life. His method is repeatable and it's relational, and we are called into that mission. God is the host. He is sending out invitations to any who will join him back at the table. And we, the church, get to be the, the people who send out those invitations and walk people in. Now, I know in a room this size, there's probably some who, who would say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not at that table. I, I haven't accepted that invitation, and I'm not there yet. And I want, to know, I want you to know, I'm so glad you're here. We will give you gospel at this church. You'll hear the good news of Jesus. We will give you safety. This is a safe family for you to rethink your life, and we will give you time. We will give you as much time as Jesus gives you to just be who you are and to go at your own pace. But you've got to ask the hard questions. Like, what is it that's actually holding you back from joining in with Jesus? Let me pray.